Hello, bienvenue, and brochim habayim. Welcome to High Montreal, the podcast. We're your hosts, Lisa Winston and Sarah Bellani. In today's episode, we speak with Omri Vexler, a senior researcher for cyber policies and strategies at the Yuval Neyman Workshop for Science, Technology, and Security at Tel Aviv University. Omri has a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science and Government and Middle Eastern Studies from Tel Aviv University and a Master's of Arts in European Studies from the University of Dusseldorf. He received executive training in European and International Affairs from the Diplomatic Academy of Vienna and Chief Information Security Office and Data Protection Officer Certification from Bar-Ilan University. Omri is a lecturer and has participated in international conferences and Israeli parliament discussions regarding topics in cyberspace. He is a regular contributor to publications regarding cybersecurity and recently contributed to an article for the Tel Aviv University Trust website titled, What the Ukraine Crisis Means for Cyber Warfare. Today, Sarah speaks with Omri about the role that cyber warfare is playing in the current military invasion of Ukraine. Omri, welcome to Hi Montreal. Thank you very much for having me. Could you please describe your role at Tel Aviv University's Yuval Neeman Workshop for Science, Technology, and Security, and how you became interested in this subject to pursue as a career? Well, um, the workshop is, is a research center that was established back in 2002 by uh, Major General and Professor Isaac Ben Israel to study and research the connection between technologies, security, and policies. Uh, my role is uh, I'm basically responsible for the cyber projects of the workshop, which means we work with uh, government agencies and defense agencies um, and supply them research as a service. Um, my interest is in cyber was rather coincidental. Um, I wrote an article with a, with a lecturer of mine back in uh, back when I was a BA student. Um, and later I, I went to Germany to study for my master's. When I came back, I was looking for a, a job and I asked him, uh, what can I do with the BA in, in, in political science and Middle Eastern studies and, and a master in European studies? And the answer was, well, you could check upstairs at this research center called the Yuval Neumann Workshop. Um, and so I started from very low as a research assistant. Um, my job was to translate things from, from English to Hebrew. And from there, I just, you know, I learned and studied. So you're very well placed to discuss our topic of today's podcast, which is cyber warfare and how it relates to the, the war in Ukraine. CNN recently reported that the FBI's Cyber Engagement and Intelligence Section Chief stated that Russia is a permissive operating environment for cyber criminals. And in fact, Russia's cyber attacks on Ukraine go f- as far back as 2014, I, as I understand, with an attack on the Ukrainian presidential elections. In 2015, hackers with alleged ties to Russia infiltrated the computer system of Ukraine's power grid, causing power outage for 225,000 residents in Western Ukraine. And uh, in 2017, there was the NotPetya malware, which was largely 
recognized as the Kremlin's attack or, or attempt to destabilize Ukraine. Um, what type of cyber attacks are currently being used by Russia and may likely play a role in any further military invasion by Russia against Ukraine? And what impact could these um, attacks have on Ukraine? Well, um, since 2014, Ukraine served as a testbed uh, for Russia's uh, experiments with uh, offensive cyber capabilities. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, many of them focused on critical infrastructure, such as uh, electric uh, facilities, um, elections, uh, and other systems. Since the beginning of the war now, um, most of the cyber attacks we've identified belong to, uh, I mean, essentially belong to two major types. One is distributed denial of service, where the attacker sends hundreds of thousands of connection requests to a server in order to flood it with traffic and shut it down. It is rather an unsophisticated attack, you know, if, if, you, if you compare it to, to other attacks that you've seen, in, as you mentioned, in 2015 and 2016. Um, and the second type is wiper attacks. Wiper is a type of a malware that overwrites crucial files on the attacked computer and renders it uh, unable to boot. So yeah, these are, these are the two types that we've witnessed so far. Uh, however, from research perspective, the most bewildering uh, question is what did we not witness and why? I mean, many theoreticians and experts warned that the next war will be in a cyber war and that cyber warfare will probably take a more central place. However, knowing the, 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 the true capabilities of, of Russian-sponsored actors, we are yet to have seen them use them. For example, as, as you mentioned, you know, to, to shut down the electricity as they did in 2015, 2016, shut down the water supplies. Uh, we haven't seen these types of attacks uh, yet. Uh, there are several reasons that experts are kind of discussing right now, trying to understand why. Um, but yeah, it is important to see to see the the full range of of capabilities in order to know what to what to be ready for. I think the threat for critical infrastructure is not totally off the map. And it's interesting because you wrote an article in summer of 2021 for Calculist, a leading tech publication that was titled The Five Biggest Global Cyber Threats of 2021, which you, you list out a few um, attacks that, that you just mentioned. So it's interesting to see that even months before the current war, some of these attacks made the article of um, you know, the biggest trends for cyber attacks to look out for. So what do you think Russia hopes to achieve with, with its cyber warfare and these different attacks that you mentioned? Well, in most cases, cyber attacks are used to disrupt services, cause confusion and uncertainty. It does seem that most of Russia's effort in this direction uh, was aimed at actual military goals, such as you know, hours before the invasion, uh, they use these, these denial of service attacks to paralyze Ukrainian military systems. Um, they try to paralyze government websites and services to cause confusion and insecurity among uh, Ukrainian citizens. Uh, maybe diminish their moral, uh, sway public opinion against the Zelensky government. 
However, by now it's it's very difficult to assess uh, their success. Uh, we have no evidence that that it, they managed to actually decrease the the morale of of the Ukrainian citizens at all. So that's really interesting. So what you're saying is a lot of the impact might not be actually in the in the ground in the battlefield, but more of a psychological type warfare that they're that they're trying to instill, but that there's no actual evidence that that it's working in Ukraine. Yes, with, with the other type of damage is, is more physical as we discussed, and this type of damage we, have, we haven't seen yet for some reason. And after this war is, is over, how difficult is it to, to rebuild the infrastructure or kind of fix what the damage that these Russian attacks have, been, have had on, on Ukraine? Well, denial of service attacks, as, uh, as I mentioned them before, uh, their damage is, is rather temporary. I mean, in, in, very, in very rare cases, you will have to, to uh, bring the whole server back, but the damage is temporary. The wiper malware is um, a bit more serious, um, but replacing the infrastructure, you know, you have to you have to rebuild your infrastructure, buy new equipment at some at sometimes. You know, reinstall things. It, it may take a couple of weeks or a couple of months. It also depends on on the type of data that was lost, um, and whether the Ukrainians had backups for 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 this type of data. And how sophisticated are the cyber attacks that are that are coming from Russia? You mentioned that the denial of service attacks are relatively less sophisticated but yeah how, how sophisticated are these attacks and can we tell by the sophistication of the attacks how long Russia might have been preparing for this cyber warfare? Well it depends. Uh, denial of service attacks you don't need to prepare. You just need to get the, the, the IP address of the server and you have tools like very accessible tools in order to, to, to do it. The wiper attacks that I mentioned uh, are different because you need to develop or create the malware itself. You need to identify system vulnerabilities on the target uh, on the targeted system. Um, one of these wipers, when researchers uh, looked at the code, they realized that it was developed in December 2021. Otherwise, using sophisticated cyber capabilities require a lot of preparation and reconnaissance work. Um, one of the theories uh, with regards to why the Russians did not use their most sophisticated capabilities yet is that they just didn't manage to prepare them ahead of the invasion. Uh, it coincides with the theory that this whole special operation uh, wasn't carefully uh, planned at all. What can Ukraine do to counter these Russian state-backed attacks? both through official channels and through what we're seeing as pro-Ukrainian cyber guerrillas or hacktivists? So uh, one thing is, is uh, cyber defense, uh, which we can see about what, what we can see about the Ukrainians is that they gained, they seem to have gained a lot of experience uh, in the last couple of years, ever since the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Uh, as I mentioned, Ukra Ukraine was the testbed of all of Russia's uh, offensive cyber capabilities. It is highly possible, and they admitted themselves, that they have learned a lot from, from it and heightened their defenses uh, ahead of time, especially around their critical infrastructure. 
Another thing is that they receive a lot of technical assistance uh, from NATO and the EU, especially uh, the US. Uh, the, the US Cyber Command has been running uh, operations in the last couple of, uh, uh, of years, uh, named uh, Hunt Forward Operations, where they sent uh, teams to allied countries in order to uh, stay on their networks and, and hunt for, for, for cyber threats and gain all kinds of insights with regards to it. So it's very possible that, that these teams or other teams might have helped the Ukrainians prepare. Uh, regarding hacktivists, uh, it's not a new phenomenon. And now and then when there's a conflict between nations where one nation is perceived internationally to be the bad guy, hacktivists uh, tend to rally in order to disrupt and embarrass uh, the bad, this bad guy, uh, the government and, and public sector, uh, of course, with varying degrees of, of sophistication. Um, I don't believe that they have, uh, I mean, they, they manage to embarrass the Russians a lot. They, they leak the sensitive information from, from uh, government companies, uh, et cetera, and et cetera. But usually their, their effect is, is mostly disruptive, uh, but not, operationally uh, efficient, let's say. Okay, so because the um, the Ukrainian Minister of Digital Transformation, Mikhailo Fedorov, actually posted on Twitter calling for help from, from people around the globe to defend Ukraine in cyberspace. And, and he posted a link, I think it was called Tele to Telegram, which lists out different Russian affiliated websites for people to target. How, how effective is that route that, that he's asked the world to help out with? Well, by now it seems that, that his call was answered. I mean, there are a lot of volunteers around the world who, who answered the call. Um, most of them, as I said, th their attacks are, are mostly disruptive um, and usually end up with rather minor disruptions. Sometimes they may, they may uh, leak some sensitive information that is, that is crucial uh, for military operations uh, or, or disinformation operations um, or operations that aim to sway the, 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 the morale of the Russian soldiers. Uh, just in one example, uh, only I think today or yesterday, they leaked a, a long list of, uh, of um, FSB uh, op operators, the Russian Federal Security Service. Uh, these, these things could lead for, for further operations, further cyber attacks on, on these actors themselves. Uh, also, also attacks uh, such as the one we saw at the beginning where they leaked uh, contact information of, of all the soldiers that invaded Ukraine. Uh, therefore, it was possible to reach their moms on, on the telephone and, and you know, talk to them, tell them that if they want to see their, their sons again, they have to come to Ukraine to pick them up. So some of it can act as, as helpful information, most of it not. And you mentioned the help of, of NATO countries, and obviously that's that's more of a, of a legal route to help with their cyber uh, security. What can you say about the legality of these hacktivists, this type of activity? Well, there are several attempts, uh, international attempts to, to set um, 
international norms of behavior in cyberspace. Uh, most of them, I mean, the, the, the only ones, the, there was some sort of, of, of an agreement with regards to them um, back in 2015. But we cannot say that there's, there's an actual law that governs uh, cyberspace. In between states, we can maybe say that there are a couple of, uh, let's say, unwritten rules that, that states know what to follow in order not to escalate uh, conflicts. But otherwise, in, in terms of legality, it's, it's always illegal if, if, you, if you hack the computer systems of another country or even in your, in your own country, but in your own country, you have local laws against it. International laws do not really cover it. It's only at really in nascent stages, basically. And what about the, the average person uh, on the ground in, in Ukraine or in Russia? We've seen that um, certain Russian government websites have been hacked uh, with information about the Ukrainian war and, and kind of the lies that Russia has been spreading within, within Russia to its citizens. Do we know the impact that those kinds of cyber attacks are having on, on the average person in the region? Uh, well, we have to ask them. It's very difficult to, to assess the, the effectiveness of such things, I think. Um, in Ukraine, we haven't seen uh, responses uh, for, for these kind of attacks. I think that if you'd ask the, the, the usual Ukrainian citizen, I think that the thing that bothers them the most is, is the physical attacks uh, of missiles and, and artillery barrages, etc., etc. Um, also in Russia, Russia is rather closed right now. I mean, many of their citizens are using all kinds of solutions such as VPNs in order to reach uh, Western uh, media or social media, but it's very difficult to assess the effectiveness of such things. There's been experts, uh, and including the Ukrainian government, who say that the work of these uh, cyber guerrillas or hacktivists can help Ukraine sow chaos in Russia, like we were discussing, um, as the country is defending itself against the Russian military invasion. However, there is some criticism that work of the hacktivists might might be a disruption. It might um, interfere with official operations or accidentally damage unintended targets or even prompt counterattacks. Do you agree with the criticism or is there more benefit to the actions uh, than the critics suggest? I think it really depends because uh, most of these attacks by hacktivists are, are, not the, the, are not targeting the same targets that say a military intelligence agency will, will target. I mean, if you, uh, for example, hack the Russian central bank, it's not quite of the, of the target that you will see on, on, you know, on the lists of, of the US cyber command or, 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 or any other uh, intelligence or military agency. Um, as we said, uh, the, the effectiveness is, is arguable. Most of these operations are opportunistic and are considered less sophisticated. So I think their operational benefit is, is limited in a way. With regards to prompting a, a counterattack, 
again, you know, you, you face as a country, you face hundreds or thousands of, of such attacks. And whether there's a counterattack, there could be a counter counterattack because these hackers are operating from other countries. Some of them are are Western countries, developed countries. Um, if the Russians hack them back, they could basically sabotage uh, Western like systems and targets in, in Western countries. Therefore, they could prompt another counterattack. Also, also another thing is that, as I said, you have hundreds or thousands of them. Uh, so it's really, really difficult to, to respond to each and every one of them. A recurring theme that you've been talking about is, is that we can't really assess the the kind of, um, I guess, material impact that these hacktivists are having. But maybe one thing that they actually are impacting quite a bit is morale and showing Ukraine that there are pe thousands of people around the world that, that will fight for them in, in cyberspace. Yeah, I mean, for example, uh, I mean, also, also by, by revealing um, some of, of, of what happens uh, to the Russians themselves, for example, at the beginning of the month, uh, a group uh, associated with the anonymous uh, collective hacked um, the streaming service of Russia. They're, they're equivalent to Netflix. And they've shown pictures and, and films uh, from, from the war zone, including all kinds of gruesome uh, pictures of, of Russian uh, casualties, burning uh, armored vehicles, um, so there's, there's, there is a certain, uh, it could be a certain uh, effect uh, to sway the morale of the Russian citizens, maybe show them that, you know, they don't know the whole truth. And trying to counter affect the propaganda that's, that's being spread by the Kremlin in Russia. Yes, though propaganda exists on both sides, uh, quite understandably, like in every war, I guess. And just to, to, to bring in, because you do work uh, at um, the Research Institute at Tel Aviv University, so bringing Israel into the conversation, um, Israel has unfortunately had to deal with its fair share of uh, cyber warfare and cyber attacks against Israeli institutions, including from Russian-backed Iran. Uh, but fortunately, Israel has quite a sophisticated cybersecurity program or activities, and I've even seen some commentary that Israel is named the cybersecurity powerhouse. So what can Ukraine learn from Israel in this cyberspace? And what can organizations and governments do to protect themselves um, against the attacks that we've been discussing? Well, I think that, that uh, many lessons that, that Israel learned, I mean, Israel was the first uh, country to learn a couple of lessons. First of all, to understand that cyber attacks are the future. It was back in, back in the 1990s. To understand that, that, that you have to learn how to use computers in order to collect intelligence. And also in, in terms of defense, we were the first country to, to realize that cyber attacks may endanger uh, critical national uh, systems and the first country to actually sign this, this uh, government decision to, to declare these, these, these systems as national uh, critical uh, infrastructure and, and, and 
put them under the, the uh, Internal Security Agency uh, back in uh, 2002. Uh, so I think many of these lessons were already learned uh, by, by countries around the world. Uh, Ukraine had their fair share um, of lessons in that sense. But with regards to, to uh, protecting systems and, and infrastructure from cyber attacks, we tend to say that if a state-sponsored actor such, a for, such as a foreign intelligence agency tries to infiltrate uh, into a common organization's network, not to mention small and medium businesses uh, that have less resources, uh, it's impossible to, to really fend off everything. However, there are a couple of best practices and recommendations that may help us defend systems uh, from the great majority of cyber attacks. And these ones usually include raising awareness to uh, phishing attacks, for example, uh, and avoiding uh, from pressing on suspicious links. Apparently, more than 90% of, of cyber attacks in the world, um, the initial attack vector is by phishing attacks. Uh, maintaining data backups and keeping them offline, uh, using complex passwords, and in any way use two or multi-factor authentication, namely every reliable authentication mechanism that uses more than just a username and, and a password. Using encryption for data in transit and data at rest uh, and updating your hardware and software as much as you can. So as, as we've seen, I mean, it's been very important for, for a, long, a, a long time now, but um, increasingly so to be cyber aware and to do all the steps that, that you just mentioned. Um, I wanted to thank you, Umri, for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us on this important and quickly evolving aspect of modern warfare. I know this short podcast can't cover all aspects of cyber warfare as it pertains to the war in Ukraine, but thank you for giving our listeners a tum, a taste of this important and fascinating subject matter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of High Montreal, the podcast. It was fascinating to hear Omri explain the types of cyber attacks implemented in the current war in Ukraine, the role that hacktivists are playing, and how organizations and governments can prepare and protect themselves against cyber attacks. We'd love for you to hit subscribe or follow on the platform on which you're listening to this episode of High Montreal, the podcast, so that you're kept up to date with our latest episodes. Until next time, Shalom, Valihitraot. Thank you.